Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those famous words were spoken by a first century itinerant Jewish preacher. One who is a little unlike most preachers. Listen to how Matthew chapter 3 describes him. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquestionable, uh, unquenchable fire. John, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, was a fiery preacher who called people to repentance and always pointed to Christ. And so when he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we should consider that. And we should also consider this. How is that possible? How is that statement possible? How is it possible that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? This is a question that at its core is the gospel. And the Apostle Paul answers this as he continues to charge and encourage Titus in his shepherding of the flock of God on the island of Crete. So if you're not already there, turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And we're going to be specifically, as we just continue our working through uh, Paul's epistle to Titus, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 7 this morning. But I want to read beginning, uh, right at the beginning of the chapter. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 says this, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need today, that you would feed us from your word, help us to see and understand, give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Most people, whether they come from a a church background or uh, some measure of Christianity or not, most people understand the concept of the sacrificial lamb. In fact, it's kind of a, a saying or a figure of speech for, for anyone or, or anything who gives of themselves for others, sometimes by force, sometimes willingly. Sometimes it can be used in a negative way, and sometimes it can be used positively. But we understand that when Jesus went to the cross, he went as a sacrificial lamb. In fact, he went as the true sacrifice. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and that Christ died in the place of sinners. He died that you might live. This is the central message of Christianity. But let's dig into this this concept just a little bit deeper as as we work through this passage here in Titus chapter 3. And as we do, I want to remind you of Paul's purpose for writing this letter to begin with. He was writing to instruct Titus, the pastor there on Crete, to establish orderly churches. And so he writes that, that orderly churches, as he puts it, must be, they must have a leadership. They must be led by men who are above reproach and able to instruct and and to rebuke according to the sound teaching of the Scripture. And then he goes on to say that the older men of those orderly churches are to be sober-minded and sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Likewise, the older women of these orderly churches are to be reverent in their behavior and, and teachers of goodness training the younger women in matters of godliness and love. And these orderly churches are to be places wherein the younger men are urged toward self-control. And even the slaves are to do all that they can to adorn the doctrine, the teaching of God our Savior. Why? Because the Lamb of God has come and has taken their sins. Because Christ has come, and His message of good news, gospel, is training us. It is sanctifying us, and and we are waiting for our blessed hope, the return of the One who saved us and set us apart for Himself as as a people for His own possession. And as a result of that, as a result of the good news of Jesus Christ, as a result of the proclamation of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, because the gospel is training us in Christ-likeness, orderly churches are those in which the, the default position, the default attitude and action is submission to rulers and authorities. It's obedience. It's a readiness for every good work. It is speaking evil of no one. It is a, an avoidance of quarreling. It's an attitude of gentleness and a display of perfect courtesy 
toward all people. We could put it this way. An orderly church is a church in which the Spirit of God is working at regenerating and renewing us. The Spirit of God is producing fruit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there are times when we as Christians need to be reminded of who we were and what God has done for us. Is that not true? There are occasions, maybe daily, where we need to be reminded of who we were and what God has done for us. And so as we look at these verses, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, we can see one such reminder. and We can see it very clearly. So if you remember back a couple of weeks ago in our study here of Titus, um, I said that chapter 2, verse 15, the last verse of chapter 2, down through the second verse of chapter 3, we're in the middle of a gospel sandwich. Some of you might remember the sandwich. This is where we find ourselves this morning, really kind of going back to this. Going back to the indicatives. That's a word I want you to remember. Remember, when, when reading the letters of the New Testament, it is important to discern the indicatives from the imperatives. Indicatives indicate. They point out that something has been accomplished. And the imperatives command. It is imperative that you obey. And so in the middle of this gospel sandwich are the imperatives, the things that we ought to do. But on either side are the indicatives. They're the things that God has done that enable us to obey Him, that free us to obey Him. And so our outline this morning follows three indicatives. These are just three simple statements of truth. What we were, what God has done, and what that makes us. What we were, what God has done, and what that makes us. So we'll begin with the first, what we were. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Simply put, we could say we were without regeneration. We were without salvation. We were without Christ. This is the condition of mankind. This is not simply the, the condition of the people of the island of Crete. This is the condition of humanity. John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, shares the gospel like this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And he is condemned because Titus 3.3 is true. But did you notice the first word of the verse? It's four. Some versions don't have it, 
Um, but it's there in the Greek as Paul wrote this. And this means that, that verse 3 is directly connected to the preceding verses. For, or like therefore, or because of this. The reason that we are gentle, for example. Well, let me make this connection first. We have to make this connection because the reason that we are called to apply these verses, verses 1 and 2, is because of these next several verses. Because of what we used to be. But by the grace of God, literally, we are not that anymore as Christians. So the reason that we are gentle, for example, is because God was gentle with us. We could expand on this for a while. There are many parables that Jesus told that illustrate this exact point. That the reason that we are gentle, the reason that we are kind, the reason that we are loving is because he first loved us. Jesus told many parables that illustrate this exact point. But let's keep moving here. Verse 3, in particular, is set against verses 1 and 2. It's an opposite. Be like this because you used to be like this. As I said, it's, this is the condition of mankind, including Paul. Even the Apostle Paul fell under verses 3 as a description. He writes this, For we ourselves were once foolish. We. This should remind us of what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3. to 3. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were sinners in need of a Savior, all of us. Now, surely this list in verse 3, in Titus 3.3, surely this isn't meant to be an inclusive list of the specific sins that we were all enslaved to before we were given new life, is it? Or is it? Paul seems to be saying that, yes, we all were guilty. We all were, at, to our very core, filled with sinfulness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. So let's look at what he's saying. And remember, this is set over and against the previous verses. So we can kind of break this into two parts. The vertical and the horizontal. So he begins by saying, vertically, we were wrongly ruled. Those over us were wrong. Instead of being submissive to our rulers and authorities, particularly our ultimate ruler and authority, we were foolish, disobedient, and led astray by our own selves, by our own selfish passions and pleasures. We were ruled by our own standards, or worse, by the desire to fit in with the, with the world's ever-changing standards, with the world's passions and pleasures. And they're ever-changing, are they not? Once we were governed by that which is foolish. Once we were led astray or deceived. Foolish and led astray or foolish and deceived. 
These two terms go together and, and they bring the, uh, the idea of having completely wrong understanding. We thought about everything completely wrongly. We were foolish. We were led astray and deceived. We were headed in the wrong direction because we did not know Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray. We possessed no wisdom. In fact, we resisted God's wisdom, and we followed another's lies. And as a result, we were looking for fulfillment in the pleasures and passions of worldliness. But not only were we wrongly ruled, we were also wrongly relating to others around us. Before regeneration, before salvation, we spoke evil of others. We quarreled. We were not gentle, but violent. We were not courteous, but self-seeking. We passed our days dwelling in malice, envy, and hatred. Hatred all around. Malice is that heart attitude of plotting to get back at others for how you think they have wronged you. Plotting to get back at others for how you think they have wronged you. Whether you actually act on that or not, we were at least plotting it. We were thinking about it. Even if it was just name-calling. Even if it was just name-calling in our mind. And not even saying it. It was there. Envy is the heart attitude of plotting to get what others have because you think you deserve it and not them. Both of those, malice and envy, lead to hatred. Hatred all around. Hated by others, hating one another. Before Christ, we were self-absorbed. We spent our time looking for ways to strike back at each other and, and marinating in hatred. This is how the Bible describes life without Christ. Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians again in chapter 4. Ephesians 4, 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Consider also 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This, this passage in Titus is very similar to both of those. We once lived lives of sin, but God intervened. See, that's what we were. 
As Christians, that's what we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now let's look at what God has done. This is important. What has God done? Look at verses 4 to 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the intervention of God's grace. Do you see that word but at the beginning of verse 4? I think that's one of the most important words in all of Scripture. But. Especially when it's followed by, but God. If you are a Bible writerer, if you write in your Bible, and I would encourage you to go ahead and do that if you want, it's fine. Look at the words, but God saved, in verses 4 and 5. Circle them. But God saved. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Do you see that? But God saved We see this time and time again in the scriptures, but God, but God saved. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, but God saved. And these verses... These show us the, great, the, the, the character of our great God. So think of, what, think of what motivates you to obey the commands of, say, verses 1 and 2. Verse 3 tells us that it, it's because of what you were. And verses 4 and 5 now, they can see it's really because of who God is and what God has done. That's why we obey. Not just because we want to clean up our act and and be better than we used to be, but because God has saved us. This morning, we find ourselves on Resurrection Sunday, the Lord's Day of Lord's Days, Easter Sunday, and we rejoice in, in Christ's victory over sin and death. And we also come to this question, why is it that sinners are saved through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or, or to ask it like we did earlier. How is it possible that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, the first and foremost answer to that question is that salvation flows from the character of God. Notice that verse 4 mentions His goodness and loving kindness. Look at verse 4 again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Remember, apart from Christ, we were filled with malice, envy, and hatred. And God's character is completely other from that. It is completely other from mankind. Man is opposed to God's goodness and His loving kindness, yet our salvation flows from His goodness. From God's goodness. In fact, God's goodness is is reflected in His creation, in His work. 
Think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. It actually says something like this several times throughout the chapter, but this is the summary. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Nature is a reflection of, of the reality. As Psalm 118 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Creation is good because God made it. And this good God brings not only life, but new life because of his goodness. This is why the angels proclaimed at the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, and I have to read this one in the King James too. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God is good. And he gives that goodness to men through his grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the manifestation of God's goodness. He's God's goodness in the flesh. We are saved because of his goodness. Because, verse 4 again, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when Christ came, when he was born, when he lived a sinless life, when he went to the cross in our place, when he came out of that tomb, he saved us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, God our Savior, he saved us. We are saved because of his goodness. And we're saved because of his loving kindness. Loving kindness. I want to be sure that you understand this word. Loving kindness. I want to read for you a verse in which the same word is used to describe someone else. I think this will make sense when I read this verse. The context is that Paul has been shipwrecked off the island of Malta in Acts chapter 28. And we read this one verse. It's Acts 28 verse 2. He's shipwrecked. They come ashore. And the native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. God's loving kindness, his unusual kindness, is his going out of his way to provide for the needs of those who cannot help themselves. God's kindness, his, his unusual loving kindness, is his going out of his way to provide for the needs, the greatest need, our greatest need is Christ. Our greatest need is salvation. Our greatest need is deliverance. And he provides for that for those who cannot help themselves. Think again, I, I said this before, but think again of that other gospel summary, probably the most famous in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. His goodness and his loving kindness are among the, the, the motives of his salvation for us and, his, and our response of obedience toward him. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. God, our Savior. Who is this? Who is God, our Savior? Or, or let me ask it like this. Who is the goodness and loving kindness 
of God our Savior. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Obviously, we're talking about Jesus right here. This is Jesus who was sent by the Father. The Father was active along with the Son and the Spirit in securing your salvation. This was God's plan. God designed your salvation. The Apostle John in his first letter will summarize the gospel message like this in, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to bear our sins upon Himself and take them away from us. God's grace has intervened to save us, not because of our own righteous works, but according to His own mercy, according to His goodness and loving kindness toward us. He saved us. And now we also can see the results of this grace. Look again at verse 5. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Zero in on that phrase, regeneration and renewal. Regeneration and renewal. Notice throughout the verse, throughout this passage, really in all of the passages that I've read today, and I would challenge you to go back and read, the whole Bible is all God's work of salvation. Salvation is all of God here. It is all God's work. It is His grace. He saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration. This is the new birth. Remember what John said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And John, a little bit later, explained it like this. He said, actually a little bit earlier in John chapter 1, he said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were given new life in Christ regeneration. It's sometimes called conversion. This is that, that radical break with the old life. It's repentance and faith. It is believing in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Titus 3.3 that verse with those list of sins, hate, malice, envy, and hatred, that has passed away for Christians. It no longer describes you as a Christian. That life is dead and gone. God's, God's promise of Ezekiel chapter 36 has come to pass. Remember that promise? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So if, if regeneration means new life or the new birth, then renewal is that, that new life that continues to be conformed to the image of Christ. Regeneration and renewal there in verse 5. 
It's a life that continues to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the work that is done by the Holy Spirit, he tells us. It's done through the ministry of God's Word. This is what Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, when he said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. The Holy Spirit makes us holy, sets us apart for His own possession, conforms us to the image of Christ by using the Word of God, the truth of His Word. Both regeneration and renewal are the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. So so it looks like this. Someone told you the gospel. Someone, if you're a Christian, somebody told you the gospel. And the Spirit gave you new life. And as you continue in the Word, the Spirit continues to renew your heart and your mind as He transforms you into the image of Christ. This is how the Spirit works in our lives. Jesus promised in John chapter 14 that He would not leave us as orphans. In fact, He promised at the end of the Great Commission, at the end of Matthew chapter 28, that He is with us always, even to the end of the age, He tells us. Look at verse 6. Let me read 5 and 6 again. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. One of the commentaries I was reading said this of this verse. He said, Paul envisions an issuance of the Holy Spirit, not by drabs and dribbles, but in a full and rich stream. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. He has poured him out richly. This is the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. We have been richly provided all all the riches and and the power that we need to live up to the challenges of Christian living. Let me say this again. We have been, as Christians, we have been richly provided all the riches and the power that we need to live up to the challenge of Christian living. The Father has poured out on us His Spirit, and He has given us new life in and through Jesus Christ. So Christian, you need to hear this. You need to remember that you have been given new life and you have been immersed into the Spirit of God. We were sinners, but God's grace intervened and He saved us. So what does that make us now? What does that make us now? This is the third indicative that we should see here is what this makes us. Look at verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified heirs. This is the the what of our salvation. Our guilt is removed and it is replaced with His righteousness. On Good Friday, Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. He, He bore the wrath of God in His own body for our sin. He took all of your guilt and shame. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it is in Him that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches 
of his grace. All of this is grace. All of this is what saves. What saves is God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Justification, declaring that justice has been served, is God's work on your behalf. God, the holy and righteous judge, the only one in all of creation that can declare justice, that can, that can declare justification, looks at Jesus Christ as he becomes our sin, became our sin. He sees the penalty that Christ paid. And he declares us justified. Justification is God's work on our behalf. And not only does he remove the penalty from sin, he actually makes us heirs, he says here. Heirs. He has given us the right to be called children of God. Not only, not only does he say, okay, I won't, I won't send you to hell. I'm actually going to give you eternal life. I'm actually going to allow you love to have you spend eternity with the Father. He gives us the right to be called children of God. He gives us the heirs of eternal life. And this is our hope. This is the hope that we have. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How is it possible that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? It's all because his grace intervened and he saved us. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, as we consider this, we do not presume to have saved ourselves. That would be foolish. We can't be good enough because we have, um, because sin has so infected us that it's, it's spread throughout every fiber of our being. Not just in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our hearts. David confessed in Psalm 51 that he has, um, he has hidden sins. Sins he doesn't even know about. And yet in Christ, you have washed us completely clean. Removed the penalty for all of that. Father, as we, as we come to the table this morning to proclaim the death of Christ, as we proclaim this Resurrection Sunday, that He is risen. Lord, we, we come in some senses heavy because we still know that we struggle with these things. We know that we have malice and envy and hatred. And yet, Lord, you have given us your spirit. You have given us your word. You have given us all that we need to put those sins to death. And you have declared for those who are yours that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we pray that as we come to the table this morning to proclaim Jesus' death until he returns, that if there are any here who do not know you, who have not repented and believed, that they would do so today, Lord. Today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts, but repent and believe. Father, we pray that you would continue to work even as we leave here this morning, even as we go out and enjoy an afternoon, a beautiful afternoon, Lord, some with family, some with feasting, some celebrating. Lord, we pray that we would leave here as a changed people, dependent and reliant only on Jesus for all life and godliness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.